Good to see the parking lot uh, filling up on Sunday mornings. Praise God for what he's doing, what he's going to do. Uh, he's not done. This is just, just the beginning of good things. I want to speak to you this morning on the topic of uh, resurrection. If you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15. It's a very long chapter, uh, and, and it deals with this most important topic of resurrection. And uh, I'm going to call this Resurrection Part 1, because I think I might go through the whole chapter if God leads me to. It's so important. But we're only going to read the first 11 verses this morning. So if you would, would you stand with me as we read the Word of God? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you were saved, if you keep in memory what I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. Last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, and am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. I'm going to ask Pastor Larry Allen if he'll lead us to the Lord in prayer. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Resurrection. Now, this is an important topic. It has um, implications for us uh, beyond just Easter Sunday morning. Uh, we, we live in the, uh, the power of Resurrection Sunday every, each and every day. Uh, it's the crucial doctrine uh, of, of Christianity is the resurrection. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then he's not the Son of God. And, and if he's not risen from the dead, then we're wasting our time 
Uh, I should be out on the golf course this morning if Jesus is not risen from the dead. But he has risen from the dead. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Now, Paul is writing to the Corinthian believers. And just to give you a little context before we get into the, the meat of the message, uh, this is a Greek uh, culture. The Greeks were not very uh, fond of this idea of resurrection. If you've ever read the book of Acts, you know when Paul was in Athens and Mars Hill, uh, they were willing to entertain him as long as he was preaching and talking about their, their philosophers and their poets. But once Paul started talking about the resurrection, uh, the scriptures said that they pretty much turned him off. They thought that was foolishness. They, they kind of laughed him out of town, so to speak. And this was prevalent in the Greek culture, which Corinth was a part of. Uh, they had a low view of the body, really. Most, uh, most Greek philosophers believed that the body was a prison uh, for the soul. And so they were looking forward to being enlightened and shedding uh, the, uh, this, this prison, as it were. And we're not sure uh, if, if some false teacher had influenced the Corinthians or if it was just part of they were, they were bringing in some baggage from their, uh, their culture. How many of you know we all have some baggage that we bring with us to the table? Except for me, of course, but <laughs> I'm just kidding. We've all got baggage, but uh, we're not exactly sure, but for, for whatever reason, the Corinthians were beginning to doubt the resurrection. Now, uh, contrary to what some preachers teach, I don't believe that they doubted the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we'll see that in just a moment really quickly here but but I believe that they were doubting their own resurrection they had doubts about that now it's not an accident that chapter 15 Corinthians comes right after what chapter <laughs> 14 and in those chapters if you've ever read the Bible 12 through 14 Paul deals with spiritual gifts uh, the Greek word is charisma uh, the, the Corinthian church was a charismatic or a Pentecostal church, if you prefer that vernacular. And the problem was not that they were charismatic or Pentecostal, if you want to use that, that terminology. The problem was how they were abusing the gifts of the Spirit. I believe in the gifts of the Spirit. I'm not one of those cessationists who believe that everything died with the apostles because the apostles were never the source of the power anyway. It was God Almighty. The Holy Ghost hasn't gone anywhere. He's still alive and well. He's, he's still with us. And uh, I believe we're still living in the power of Pentecost. And, uh, but, but they, the Corinthians, had what we would call a, an over-realized eschatology. Now, some of you say, well, that's Greek to me. Uh, but, but what it means is that they believed that they were already ruling and reigning, that they had already entered a higher plane, if you want to say it that way. And so they really had no use for the resurrection, a resurrected body, because they believed they were already uh, kind of in the kingdom, so to speak. They were already... Uh, ruling and reigning and so they were looking forward to dying then and becoming whatever and that's what a lot of false religions believe uh, they believe that that people die and they come back as trees or or cows or birds or, or whatever this idea of reincarnation but you know i believe a lot of christians they don't understand resurrection either and i know this because i preach funerals and i go to funerals and i hear people saying stuff like you know, God needed another flower in his garden. 
No, when you die, you don't become a rose bush or a lily, an Easter lily. Or God needed another angel. And so mama's got her wings now. The Bible never teaches that we'll become angels. We're, we're distinctly different than the angels. We're made in the image of God. And the angels were ministering spirits. People don't become angels. And if you don't believe that, see me after service. I'm not going to fuss with you. But I'll just show you in the Bible. People don't become angels. But I, I say that because I hear it all the time. The people don't understand. And, and the devil has done a masterful job. Satan is a master uh, manipulator, deceiver. And he has created through media, uh, movies, television, whatnot, this kind of medieval uh, philosophy about resurrection. And, and this idea that when people die, they just kind of float float around and they're they're playing harps and 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 subsequently most people have no desire to go to heaven or to or for Jesus to come back because they think man that sounds like a drag that sounds boring to me but you and I are going to be resurrected with a body that's similar to what we have now but different we'll be able to taste to touch to feel when Jesus rose from the dead he told Thomas, he said, reach forth your hand and touch me. For a spirit or a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see me have. It was tangible. If you're a Christian, now there, everybody's going to be resurrected, by the way. If you're saved, you're going to be resurrected uh, to eternal life. If you're lost, you'll be resurrected and thrown into the lake of fire. And that's, that's biblical truth. It's not popular. You hear this saying, well, you only live once. No, that's not true. You're going to live forever somewhere. You'll live forever with God in the pleasures and the joy of the Lord. Or you're going to have everlasting punishment away from the presence of the Lord where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, where the worm never dies and the fire is not quenched. And it's real. And I don't care what the liberal uh, theologians would tell you. Hell and the lake of fire are real. Don't believe in annihilation. The Bible doesn't teach annihilation, that you just cease to exist. You're going to live forever somewhere. But let's get back to the positive now. You and I, as born-again believers, we have been created not just to float through uh, the sky, just ethereal being, not to be able to enjoy and to taste, touch, and feel, but you and I are going to have an experience unlike any other. I, I truly believe uh, Jesus, when he was resurrected from the dead, he was able to eat fish. That gets me excited. How about you? I don't know if they have tartar sauce in heaven, but if they do, they better use Duke's mayonnaise. <laughs> Putting in my order right now. Jesus ate fish. He ate a honeycomb. Um, he was not subject to the laws of gravity. When the doors were shut, the Bible says that Jesus appeared, you know, in the room. That's going to be pretty cool. I don't know if we'll be able to do that or not, but it might be nice. All right, so let's go to the first uh, slide, guys. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you, this is verse 1, the gospel that I preached unto you. Now, I want you to notice three things that Paul says about these Corinthians. It says that they received the message. They were standing in the message. And the King James says in verse 2, by which you are saved. In the Greek, it actually means you're being saved. It speaks of the ongoing work of sanctification. Okay, So we're going to look at several testimonies 
or witnesses of the resurrection. The first witness of the resurrection was the Corinthians themselves. They had already seen, and I've got the, the scripture up here. You can read it for yourself. I'm not going to quote it. But they had already experienced the life-changing power of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is transformational. See, it'll take, a, it'll take an adulterer and make him a, a godly one-woman man. It'll take a homosexual and give him godly sexual orientation. It'll take a thief and make him restore what he's stolen. Make good, not steal anymore. The gospel of Jesus Christ will take somebody that's enslaved to alcohol and liberate them from whatever addiction they may be dealing with or extortioners. And notice what Paul says to these guys. He says, and such were. He doesn't say are. He says, such were some of you. What happened? They believed in the life-changing, transformational power of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And might I say to you that that same power that the Corinthians experienced is available to you and I today. And I don't care what you're bound up with today, you can leave here free. For who the Son has set free is free indeed. I don't care what you were. You don't have to, that doesn't have to define you. Your past doesn't define you. It's not about where you've been. It's about where you're going. The Corinthians were living proof. They had believed. And notice, now, Paul was ashamed of a lot of things that the Corinthians did. <laughs> there were times when Paul spoke to them and he said, you know what, I can't brag on you. I can't praise you. I can't brag on you. I'm ashamed of what you're doing. But he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Notice how he, he addresses them. He says, now I'm speaking to you brothers and sisters. You could include sisters there. It's implied in the text. They were messed up in their theology, but they were born again. I'm so glad <laughs> that God can save us even though we don't fully understand everything about the Bible. And that goes for me too. I, I don't know everything there is to know about the Bible. Sometimes people will ask me a question about the Bible because they think I know everything, and I'll look them square in the eye and say, I don't know. I'll look it up for you though. I won't stay in ignorance. I don't know everything. I'll tell you what, I haven't even scratched the surface of this book. Oh, yeah, I've read it through several times. But I haven't even scratched the surface of it. How, you can speak to that experience, too. How many times have you read a passage over and over and over and over again, and then all of a sudden the light bulb comes on, and you're like, wow, that's what it really means. That's the Holy Spirit working in your life. They, uh, they were brothers. Now, this was a kind of a gentle rebuke. He said, Paul says, I declare unto you, but the Greek actually is like, I'm reminding you of this. You used to understand this. You know Jesus rose from the dead. Otherwise, you wouldn't be saved. That's what we get to in verse 2. By which also you are saved. You know, the only way you can be saved is to believe in the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, that's a cardinal truth. That's a, there is a guy, and I will not tell you his name, He's a pastor of a large church in Atlanta. He also a, claims to be a politician. And he tweeted out recently that, that Easter was, was far more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I would say to you, that man's a false prophet. 
And I don't care how many members of his church. I think he's got 6,000 members of his church. But they're following a blind guy to the blind. I'm telling you the truth. If there's no resurrection, we're, it's over. It, it's a, this is a waste of time. And so they were saved. Why? Because they had accepted the doctrine of resurrection. That's the only way you can be saved. Have you ever read through the book of Acts and every sermon that Paul, Peter, whoever preached, it included these three elements, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? Because without a resurrected Christ, there's no salvation. And that's what he says in verse 2. He says, by which you're saved, if you keep in memory what I have preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. He's saying, look, guys, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you're not saved. I don't care what, what your profession of faith was. You know, it is possible to believe in vain, the Scripture says. Luke chapter 8, the, the parable of the sower, says that there are those who believe for a little while and then they fall away. There's ten virgins, there's five wise and five foolish. They look just alike, but the five foolish had no oil in their lamps. There's a wise man and a foolish man. He, one builds his house upon the rock, the other builds his house upon the sand. They look the same on the outside. Jesus said there'd be tares among the wheat. They look the same until the time of harvest. Many will say to me on that day, Jesus said, Lord, Lord, but only the one who does the will of the Father will go to heaven. You've got to remain in this gospel, believe in the truth, and we live in a day of apostasy. We are seeing the fulfillment of 1 Timothy 4. In the last days, the Spirit speaks expressly that some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to doctrines of demons and seducing spirits. And any doctrine that denies the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is straight out of the pit of hell. Verse 3. Let's go to the next slide. The second witness is the scriptures. Now, when the Bible speaks of the scriptures in the New Testament, I'm going to give you a pop quiz. What is, the, what is the Lord referring to in the New Testament when he calls something the scriptures? Say it louder. The Old Testament. Now, there's also a push in the modern era to get rid of the Old Testament. I heard a famous preacher uh, I won't mention his name, but his daddy's Charles Stanley. <laughs> and he's got a big church. And he said, we need to get away from preaching all that stuff. We need to unhitch from the Old Testament. Let me tell you, if you unhitch from the Old Testament, you got a big problem. Number one, you won't be able to understand half of the New Testament. <laughs> the book of Revelation will be absolute gobbledygook to you. Because it's full of Old Testament references. And we'll, I can talk about that later some other time, why John did that, but why the Holy Spirit did that through John. But, but anyway, the Bible is one story. It started in a garden, it ends in a city, and all in between is Jesus Christ. On every page, listen to me, on every page, this book is, it's not a collection of stories. That's what the lost man can't understand. By the way, uh, this message here that I'm preaching today, it's not to convince the skeptic. Paul is preaching to Christians here. And I understand that. That no amount of proof that I give a skeptic, someone who is bound and determined not to believe, is going to be enough. Jesus said, without the Holy Spirit, 
He said, unless a man is born again, he cannot perceive. He can't see the kingdom of God. It's foolishness unto him. Case in point, the Pharisees. They read, read the Bible each and every day. And here's the Son of God right in front of their face. And they can't see him. Why? Because their heart's darkened. Paul said to the Corinthians also, he says that the things of the Spirit of God are foolishness unto the natural man. He cannot perceive them. So this is not something that I'm preaching to convince the skeptic, although I hope you would be persuaded if you are a skeptic as we proceed through this. And what Paul says here is that the Old Testament Scriptures, that he did not invent the message. He said, what I've received, I've delivered unto you. And there's a play on the words in the Greek. I'm not going to do that to try to be cute this morning and show you how much I know about Greek because I know less than you think I know <laughs> about the Greek language. But there's a little play on the words there. But what's exciting to me as a minister of Jesus Christ, one who's been called by God, is that I'm preaching the same message that was handed down to Peter and to Paul and to John and James and here we are in 2021, and we've got that same message. Oh, the methods changed, right? They didn't have PowerPoint when Paul was preaching. They didn't have uh, interstellar travel or Internet. And we don't have Internet here half the time because we've got Windstream. <laughs> but the message never changes. Now, he says, I've delivered unto you. Now, first of all, it says in King James, but the Greek word is in protos, which means of foremost importance. Like, if you get this wrong, if you're wrong on this, everything else is wrong. <laughs> this, you've got to embrace this core message that Jesus died, that he arose from the dead. He was buried and he rose from the dead. Now, this phrase, according to the scriptures, is, is powerful. I hope you're not in a hurry here. I just want to teach you something as God's been giving me. I want to just deliver it as the Lord has given it to me to give to you this morning. The scriptures. And by the way, all over those Old Testament scriptures, you're going to see Jesus Christ. In Genesis, you'll see Jesus when Abraham and Isaac are going up on Mount Moriah. Isaac is the willing sacrifice. And Abraham says to his friends, his servants, he said, uh, you guys just stay here. We're going to go worship and we'll come back. See, he believed Isaac would rise from the dead. Hebrews tells us that, that Abraham believed in resurrection. Get over in Exodus. Where's Christ there? He's the Passover lamb where the blood of the lamb is applied to the doorpost and the death angel passes over. Where's Christ in Leviticus? Well, he's all over there. The, the sacrifices, all of the blood Sacrifices, the atonement, the priesthood. All, all of those animal sacrifices point to Jesus. I love my old departed friend Warren Wiersbe. He's speaking of those Old Testament sacrifices. He said, under the law, the sheep die for the shepherd, but under grace, the good shepherd dies for the sheep. Hallelujah. Got to love Brother Warren. He's happy right now wherever he is with the Lord. He's happy. He's gone on to his reward. Where is Jesus in numbers, I wonder? Well, you see, Moses has got this pole, and he's got a bronze serpent up on the pole. And God said, if you look on the serpent, you'll be healed. That's where he is. And Jesus said, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The cross is pictured even in numbers. 
even in Numbers. What about Deuteronomy? And I'll stop there because we're not going to go all the way to Malachi. We don't have time. Where's Jesus in Deuteronomy? Well, Moses said that there would arise up a prophet like unto me. And him will you hear. Jesus is that prophet that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy. And Jesus was a prophet. He predicted a lot of things. He predicted that Peter would betray him. He predicted his own crucifixion. <laughs> I wrote it down in my notes, but I'm not looking at them. How many times did Jesus say, look, guys, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed by the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. He's going to be condemned to death. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be killed by the Gentiles. And on the third day, oh, guess what? I'm going to rise again. He was a prophet. He predicted destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it up again he was speaking of his body Jesus said to his friends in Nazareth and I say that word friend loosely because they tried to kill him when he preached his first sermon there he said a prophet is not without honor except among his own so Jesus considered himself a prophet Christ died for our sins it says according to the scriptures now Jesus didn't just die there's a lot of people that died. And by the way, there were people that came back from the dead too, right? There was Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain's son, uh, the widow's son in the Old Testament. I mean, there were numbers, but that was not a resurrection. That was a resuscitation. Lazarus came back from the dead, but then he died again. What a drag. <laughs> and what was even worse, as soon as he came back from the dead, the Pharisees wanted to kill him. <laughs> Guy can't catch a break, can he? You thought you had a bad week. It's like, man, I've been in the grave for four days. You know, give me a break. <laughs> give me some time to unwind here. I still smell like the burial cloths. His death was not just an ordinary death. A lot of people die every day. Every day. But his death was a vicarious death. His death was an atoning death. And this is why the cross is so doggone offensive to the world. Because the cross says you're not good enough to get to heaven on your own. Somebody's going to have to take your place. And that's what somebody did. And his name was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. That's why it's important that he's fully God and fully man. He was fully God and fully man. He's a perfect high priest. He died a vicarious death for our sins. He was buried. Now, why does the Bible even talk about him being buried? That seems like superfluous information. Well, it's important because there's, there's theories that have been hatched throughout the years that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. And he just kind of, uh, he was kind of in a, a, a state kind of in between life and death. And then uh, he got into the tomb and then he smelled the spices and he, he, he revived. Uh, that's what they call the swoon theory. You can Google that if you want to. Don't do it right now because it's utter foolishness. Uh, and I don't have time to go into all that, but listen to me. That, that tomb was sealed with a stone that would have been very difficult for somebody to just roll away. And oh, by the way, it was guarded by Roman soldiers, quite a few of them, who were guarding that tomb and knew if they let that man get out of that tomb or somebody else get in, they would be executed. Y'all look at me like you don't believe it. It was the truth. His burial, it's testimony that he was actually in the grave. Right? He was raised from the dead 
according to the scriptures on the third day. The Bible predicts that. Let's go on to the next slide. I've only got a few more. All right. So these are, these are just a couple, okay, a couple of Old Testament scriptures written a long time before Jesus died and rose again. Psalm 22, and again, look at, I encourage you to look at this on your own. Psalm 22 is a vivid depiction of the crucifixion. It's, it portrays the crucifixion scene. It shows the enemies of, of Jesus uh, railing on him. Even one of the last things that he said on the cross, it opens up. Psalm 22 opens up this way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You say, well, Jesus did that on the cross just to try to fulfill his own prophecy. Well, okay, if that's true, maybe I grant you that, okay? I don't believe that, but let's just say that's your position. But it also says that the people would make fun of him and, 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 beg, uh, and, and make fun of him about telling him to come down off the cross. Jesus didn't have any control over what the people were doing. Or what about that part in, in Psalm 22 where it says that they were gambling for his clothes? Did Jesus manipulate that too? Did he bribe the soldiers and say, hey guys, when I'm dying here, could y'all cast lots for my robe? No. How did it happen just exactly as it was predicted? Because it was God. It was the plan of God. The foreordained plan of God. Oh, and by the way, He's a Jewish guy. The Messiah's Jewish. The Jews don't kill people by crucifixion. They kill by stoning. That's in the law of Moses. Oh, and just one other little tidbit. Crucifixion hadn't even been invented when David predicted it. David says, they pierced my hands and my feet. Now, unless I've missed some biblical or historical information, that never happened to David himself. So he was obviously speaking of someone else, the son of David. All right, Isaiah 52 and 53, that passage right there is holy ground. It's some of the holiest ground of the Old Testament. And, and we need to devote some time to doing that. I won't do it today. But in Isaiah 52 and 53, it talks about the Messiah and the agony that he would go through, that he would be crucified. And Psalm, excuse me, Isaiah 52 says that the Messiah, the Lord, would be beaten beyond recognition that you wouldn't even be able to tell that he's a human being. That's what happened to Jesus Christ. Long before, and that's why this swoon theory is a bunch of garbage. He was half dead before he ever got to the cross. They had beat him with a cat of nine tails. They had put the crown of thorns upon his head. He had been beaten profusely. He, was, he, he barely carried the cross. You know, he had to have Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross with him. And then they finally drove the nails into his hands and his feet. Isaiah 52 and 53, some of the most powerful testimony of the Messiah's crucifixion. Now, many of the Jews don't believe Isaiah 53 refers to the Messiah. They believe, they believe that it refers to Israel. But when did Israel ever die for the sins of others and, and come back to life? N that didn't happen. The burial is also predicted in Isaiah 53 says that the Lord would be assigned his grave with the wicked. He was crucified with two thieves. He would be with the rich in his death. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb. I'm thinking maybe Wednesday night, 
unless God leads me in another direction. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put together a little prophecy lesson for you. And you're going to see how all the dominoes had to fall in place for Jesus to die on that cross precisely when he did. By the way, the, the, the festivals of the Lord are important too. When did Christ die as far as the feast of the Lord are concerned? Leviticus 23. Say it louder. Passover. Jesus died on Passover. Okay. The next feast, spring feast, is the feast of unleavened bread. And that has to deal with a perfect sacrifice, no sin. So when Jesus died, his blood was offered to the Father, and that fulfilled the festival of unleavened bread. Now he rose from the dead on another festival day, which is the Sunday after Passover. Does anybody know what that festival is? Starts with an F. First, first fruits. This is significant. And I, and I hope maybe to take you through this Wednesday how Jesus died on Passover, the unleavened bread sacrifice was fulfilled, and then he rose from the dead on Sunday, first day of the week, which was the festival of first fruits. Interesting to me, too, in the Corinthians that even though they're Gentiles, Paul speaks to them as if they know about the festivals. He refers to Passover. He says, even Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. He talks about the unleavened bread, purge out the leaven from among you. Uh, and be clean, be separate. He speaks to them of first fruits. In this chapter, Christ is the first fruits of them that rose from the dead. By the way, this idea of first fruits, it implies that this is the first of others. Jesus was the first to rise from the dead and be resurrected, but ours is a coming. Well, y'all are so excited. You, you need to hear this. <laughs> Paul's speaking to you this morning, too. If you believed it, you'd be excited. First fruits. All right. He also refers to Pentecost there. He refers to trumpets. There's two he doesn't refer to, and that's Day of Atonement and Feast of Tabernacles, and that's because the church is going to be out of here before the tribulation begins. Those are fulfilled in the tribulation. No extra charge for that, by the way. Some of you don't care. You're like, well, whatever. All right, the burial's predicted. Uh, jo Jesus used Jonah as a figure, right? The, bur the burial. They asked him for a sign. They said, what sign do you show us that you're the son of God? He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. There will no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as the Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so must the son of man be in the heart of the earth. So it was foretold in types and shadows with Jonah. Resurrection. Now, Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, is apparently what the early church viewed as the resurrection scripture. It was the, the resurrection, resurrection scripture. And uh, I think I'm going to read it really quick if I can get there. Psalm 16, I'm looking in 18. Psalm 16, verse 8. says, I have set the Lord always before me. Now, this is David speaking, by the way. This is significant. Many years before. <laughs> how many generations? Like 14 generations between him and Christ. David, or more than that. David said, I have set the Lord always before me. 
Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. It's, an infor it's unfortunate, really, when you read it in the King James, and you think, well, he's talking about uh, the place of the wicked, but he's, hell in the Hebrew is Sheol, and it means the grave. You'll not, so let me say it this way. You'll not leave me in the grave, neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. Now, why is that significant? Well, the Jews believed that after, after four days that the human body began to decompose. Okay? What did they say about Lazarus when he died? What did, what did his sister say? She said, by now, he stinks. Why? Because it had been four days and corruption has set in. So, that's significant because what does the Bible say? That he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, on the day of Pentecost, Peter is preaching this message and he quotes Psalm 16. And he quotes it as evidence of the resurrection. And he says, men and brothers, I declare unto you freely this day that David the patriarch could not have been talking about himself here because here is the tomb of David and David's tomb is not empty. But there is a tomb that's empty. It was empty then. It's empty now. Because the Lord is alive forevermore. So many, many years before Christ ever came, lived, died, and rose again, David predicted it by the Holy Spirit. Let's go on to the next slide. Eyewitness testimonials. These will, these will go quickly. First one, Paul says he appeared to uh, Cephas, is Peter. Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter. Now, we are not given uh, graphic details of Jesus' uh, meeting with Peter. But you can see the reference to it in Luke 24. Why did Jesus appear to Peter alone first? Well, I I'm just going to take a guess and say he probably needed it worse than any of the rest of them. After all, he had been the one who had denied his best friend. He was the one that was probably swallowed up with guilt. And the Lord appeared to Peter. I want you to think about this too as another proof of the resurrection. While Jesus was alive, Peter denied Jesus. Right? Three times. Out of fear. So if Jesus is merely a dead corpse in a tomb, do you think Peter would have died? A martyr's death for something he knew was a lie. Jesus predicted Peter's death at the end of John. He said, when you were young, you went where you wanted to go. He said, when you're old, somebody else is going to carry you where you don't want to go. Tradition, history tells us that Peter was crucified. Nero killed Peter and Paul. Bad guy. Crazy, lunatic Nero was. Peter, why did Peter give his die a martyr's death? It's because he believed in the resurrection. See, I'm not here to convince the skeptic. It's not important so much whether or not I can convince you to believe, but I want to show you what they believed. And they were willing to die for it. Peter died. Next, he appeared to the 12. Now, this number, the 12, is, it's, just a, uh, it's just a nomenclature because we know Judas was betraying them, right? He left. He was, so this was just a designation for the apostles. We know at one time Jesus appeared and there were only 10. 
right? Thomas was not in the room, and then he appeared another time. There was 11. Thomas was there, so he appeared to the 12. And again, the 12, when Jesus appeared to them, were they out preaching the gospel of the resurrection? Where were they? They were hiding. They were hiding. Why? Because they, they didn't conceive of the resurrection. So what made them come out of hiding? They believed the resurrection. You say, well, I'm still not convinced. Okay. Next it says that he appeared to, I think it said over 500, right? Over 500 people. He says, and a lot of them, most of them, he says, are still alive. Why did he say that? Because they were probably well known. And he said, if you don't believe me, go ask them. 500 witnesses. You know, our legal system is set up in such a manner that if there are enough credible eyewitnesses, a jury can reach a guilty or a, a not guilty verdict. Is that right? If there's enough eyewitness testimony that can be verified. And here you've got 500 people who saw Jesus in a resurrected body. The book of Acts says that for 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, he appeared at various times demonstrating that he was alive, Luke says, by many infallible proofs. Right. Many infallible proofs that he was resurrected from the dead. This would stand up in any court of law. I promise you. It would stand up. Paul says, but unfortunately... He says, some of them, he didn't say have died. He said they've fallen asleep. Now, why did he use that euphemism? Well, later on in this chapter, I can't wait to get there if God lets me preach this as a series. Later on in this chapter, Paul says, we're going to have a funeral, and the funeral is going to be for death itself. See, if you're a Christian, you don't die. Jesus said, if you believe in me, he said, you'll never die. You'll never die. That's why it uses the euphemism, sleep. And it doesn't mean that you go and take a nap. It just means that your separation from your body is temporary. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah were there. They were not taking a nap. They were talking with Jesus. People in heaven are alive. I don't know what all they're aware of right now. But the Bible does not teach the idea of soul sleep. But there's going to be a funeral for death. Now we get to James. Now, uh, James, there were two James in the group of the twelve. There was James the son of Zebedee and James the son of uh, Alphaeus. I think it would be uh, illogical to separate James here if it were one of those two because he would be one of the twelve. I believe this James here and most theolo theologians who are smarter than I am, which don't take much, but uh, most of the ones who are smarter than I am believe that this was the Lord's half-brother James. He wrote the book of James. He was a leader in the Jerusalem church. Now, why is this so significant? I forget you've got the notes right here in front of you. It's significant because you read in the Gospel of John, and while Jesus was ministering on the earth, his family thought he was out of his mind. They said he's beside himself. The Scripture says that, that his brothers did not believe. Okay? So imagine this. Your brother your half-brother, your brother has been going around for three and a half years saying that he's the son of God and he dies on the cross and he's put in a tomb. Now, 
Do you think if James believed for a minute that his half-brother was dead, that he'd be out telling everybody that his brother was alive? If he's got any common sense, he wouldn't do that. <laughs> Why did he do it? Because he believed in the resurrection. Finally, it says he appeared to all the apostles. And there's some that believe that there's, there's more apostles than just the 12. The 12 are designated, but uh, like Acts 14, uh, 14, 14, I think, says that Barnabas was an apostle. And so that's another discussion for another time. But anyway, Paul says there's plenty of testimony. Let's go to the next slide. <clears throat> now, this is a biggie. Interesting, too, when Jesus rose from the dead, he did not appear to the skeptics, except for James, of course. But he mostly appeared to those who loved him, those who believed in him. You say, well, why is, why is Mary and, the, you know, they appeared to the women first. Why are they not listed? Well, in the ancient culture, the witness testimony of women was not considered reliable. Things have changed, so ladies don't get mad at me. But that's why they're omitted in that. It was just a cultural thing. The fact that Jesus did appear to the women first shows you how Jesus feels about women. Does that make you feel better? Men are hard-hearted by nature. Anyway, Paul says, last of all, now, the appearance of Jesus to Paul was unique because it was not only after the resurrection, it was also after the ascension, after he had ascended to the right hand of the Father. So Paul's experience is unique from all the others. And he says last of all, and I, and I don't know if we should take him literally at his word. If we do, then that means all these other people who says Jesus has appeared to them and they wrote a book about it that they might not should be trusted. I don't know. But it says last of all, he said I was born out of one, born out of due time. Now you know I like to slip in a little Greek where I can to expand your vocabulary. So you can astound your friends with your vast knowledge of the Greek language get beyond heroes and pitas and really speak Greek ectoma and it carries with it always a negative connotation it's, it always carries with it in, in antiquity a negative by the way it's only used one time in the New Testament Paul uses it one time here and it means a miscarriage or an abortion now the Corinthians were hailing insults at Paul right and left. You know that by this time, Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church is kind of strained. And it's going to get strained even more. But they were kind of skeptical of him and his ministry. They were, they were divided. Remember how the Corinthian letter opens up the first few chapters? And, and they're all divided because one says, Oh, I'm with the Cephas, who's Peter. And the other says, well, I'm with Apollos. Some believe he was an apostle too. He was not one of the 12. Uh, and then uh, others say, well, I'm of Paul. Now, wh why might they have pre preferred Peter over Paul? Well, they might have thought that Peter was elevated since he was one of the 12. And because Paul was one born out of due time, he was an, let's say it together, an ectroma. That was pretty weak, but that's okay. He was an ectroma. And Paul's kind of playing on this. Paul says, yeah, you guys don't think I'm much to look at. By the way, his name was changed from Saul to Paul. 
Does anybody know what the name Paul means? The meaning of the name? I bet Paul does back there. It means little. So, Brother Paul, your name is li really means little, little. And I love you. I'm not picking on you. But his name was changed to Paul, which means little. Most people believe Paul was a, sh a man short of stature. And if you read 2 Corinthians, you get the idea that he was not much to look at. They said his, his, his letters are weighty and powerful, but he ain't much to look at. That's the Henry Haney version. He ain't much to look at. The pen is mightier than the sword with Paul. Now, why is this so significant? Well, Paul devoted his early career. And by the way, Paul was the rising star of Judaism. If you've ever read the book of Acts, some of Paul's speeches, he says that I had excelled more than anybody else in Judaism. Paul was the rising star of Judaism. And he was the chief persecutor of the early church. That's why they were so afraid of him after he got saved, you know. Paul's been killing Christians and then he shows up at prayer meeting. And they're like, is he here to pray? <laughs> we're not sure. Paul had devoted his life. He was zealous. He speaks of this over and over throughout the New Testament, that he was zealous, that he persecuted the church of God, that he wasted it. Book of Acts says that he breathed out threatenings, that, that Saul was literally just had the church on the run. He was the bad guy. He was the ultimate villain of the church. Think about it. If I could use a comic book analogy, you know, he was like the kryptonite, the Superman. He was Lex Luthor, the Superman. He was whoever Batman's enemy is or Spider-Man. He, he was the villain. He was the chief bad guy in the story. If you're writing a story, you got a bad guy, Paul's the bad guy in the story. He is the enemy of the church. But he said, God's grace worked on me. And he says, and I love this phrase. And this is our phrase too. Let this be your motto. By the grace of God, I am what I am. <laughs> See, Paul said, I'm not even worthy to be counted an apostle. I'll grant you that. I was not there when they crucified the Lord and he first rose from the dead. I was not a part of the number. I'm not even worthy to be compared to those guys. He said, but in the grand scheme of things, he said, I've actually worked harder than any of them. He says, but not me. It wasn't in my own strength. Have you ever looked at a map of Paul's missionary journeys? If you haven't, take some time this afternoon, and it's very easily accessible. You could Google it. And look at Paul's missionary journeys. And look at the miles that he traversed. He didn't have a private jet. He didn't even have a Model T. Ford, we're talking horseback, sandal, and boat. And if you look at that, and if you're not impressed with that, boy, you're tough to impress. You've got some really high standards. 
This man went all over the known world preaching the gospel. <laughs> it's interesting at one place where Paul arrives. You know, it's, it's interesting. Everywhere Paul went, a riot broke out. And everywhere I go, they have a covered dish dinner. <laughs> I must be doing something wrong. <laughs> everywhere Paul went, they had a riot. And one place when Paul got there, they said, uh, guys, we, we got we to put the deputies on alert because this guy who's turned the world upside down, he's here also. He turned the world upside down, him and his companions. How did he do it? Paul says, the grace of God was working with me. I love how he personifies the grace of God as a co-laborer with him. And you need to personify the grace of God in your life. I don't care what you're facing today. Some of you are facing some challenges. I'll grant you that. I am too. We all face challenges in our life. But by the grace of God, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. There is nothing too difficult for us. We can make it. And finally, Paul says, so whether it was me or them or Billy Graham or Billy Sunday or D.L. Moody or Charles Spurgeon or this goofy guy you're looking at this morning, it's not about the messenger, it's about the message. It's about the message. And I hear people from time to time, and they'll say, well, uh, you know, so-and-so is a false teacher, and they got a big church, and people got saved anyway. Yeah, they got saved in spite of that teacher, not because of him. Because it's not about the messenger, it's about the message itself. And what is that message that is so central and so crucial to biblical Christianity? It's the death that Christ died for our sins... It's an atoning death according to what? The scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The word of God is living, active, powerful. The Bible predicted a long time before that Jesus would live. You know, the Bible, it's amazing when you start weaving together all of the prophetic pieces all of the pieces together. Even Daniel, in the ninth chapter of Daniel, the prophet Daniel, he told them specifically the time frame that Jesus would be born. And he would live. The prophet Micah told us where he'd be born. Be born in Bethlehem. Samuel told us he'd be of the house of David. He'd be of the lineage of David. I mean, we've got some pretty tangible prophetic uh stakes in the ground that we can hold on to as evidence we've got the we've got david predicting a crucified messiah we've got david predicting a resurrection many years before it ever happened and god used people who had no business who had no idea that they were fulfilling prophecy the guys that crucified jesus do you think for a minute they thought hey guys we're fulfilling bible prophecy by doing this no they were just carrying out their, the, 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 uh, the intent of the angry mob. But they were being used by God. He was delivered by the determinate foreknowledge and counsel of the Father. Now, I don't know if this strengthens your faith at all, 
But from time to time, it's good for me just to go back and see, not only do I have the witness of the Holy Spirit in my heart and in my life, but I have the witness of all these. We have the Corinthian believers themselves. We've got the testimony of Scripture. We've got the testimony of credible eyewitnesses that Jesus is alive and well. There's a, there's a lot of reasons to believe, folks. A lot of reasons to believe. So much that we could spend a whole week and not cover all of the prophecies. But whether it was Paul or Cephas, the twelve, whoever. So we preached, and he says, and so you believe. Would you stand this morning? Now, in subsequent weeks, we'll discuss more in depth as to why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so significant. But it's significant for your salvation, for one. But you know, the theology of resurrection is, is woven throughout the letters of the New Testament. Paul prayed for the Ephesian believers, and he said, I pray that your eyes will be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of your calling and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Paul would say in Romans, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in your mortal body. See, So resurrection is not just about some future day where you, we die or we get raptured. We'll talk about that too. It's not just about that, but it's about right now. Resurrection power right now is available to you and I. Think about this for a moment. If you're a believer, I want you to think about your crisis this week. How many of you have challenges that you're going to face this week? Anybody? Hands all over the place. I want you to think about your problem, your challenge, whatever it is. And I want you to compare it with the power that brought Jesus back from the grave. I'm giving you some perspective here. This is Bible truth. And what is so big in your life that's so great that the power of God, the same power that brought Jesus back from the dead, cannot help you either to overcome, to avoid, or to get through whatever you're facing. Whatever you're facing. Paul begged God, God, take away this thing in my life. It's causing me such distress. And Jesus said, I can't take it away from you because I'm using it in your life. But my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. If you have never accepted and confessed the resurrected Christ as your Lord and Savior. Today is the day of salvation. You're not promised tomorrow. You come here and you can confess Christ with your mouth. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. And the Bible says you will be saved. That's a promise. You will be saved if you believe in the resurrection of Christ. And you confess that with your mouth and believe it in your heart. If you're a believer here today. And you're facing some extraordinary burden. I want you to know that your problems in comparison with the resurrection of Jesus Christ are very minuscule. I'm not minimizing what you're going through. But I'm saying the power of Jesus' resurrection is able and sufficient to get you through anything you're facing. Would you come this morning?